Yeah, so when I describe front-end development, I usually describe it as code that runs in a browser. So we are working on, you know, these, these applications that run in literally your browser, so Chrome, Safari, et cetera. And it is like this interactive thing that you use. So, you know, Google is a web application, like Reddit is a web application, the New York Times is a web application. And pretty much like the entire, everything from sending down the JavaScript, HTML and CSS to actually running it, rendering the page, all of that kind of fits into this like bigger scope of front end. Welcome back to Alexa's Input. As simple as possible, as powerful as necessary, right? Welcome to Alexa's Input. The person is probably more interesting than the tool that they're using. Welcome to the fifth episode of Welcome Alexis back to Alexis Input. Then a six-year-old runs into the data center with a squirt gun and they set that machine into a pile of sparks and flames. Yes, it's a good thing to do. Is it the thing we should be doing? Welcome to Alexa's Input. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alexa's Input. I hope that you've been enjoying the weather and having a great summer. I know I have. And I'm excited for this episode where we talk with Matthew Gerstmann about the history of the web. Matthew worked as an engineer for Today Ticks. Then he moved on to Dropbox, where he stayed for four years. And now, recently, he's joined BlueCore as a staff front-end engineer. Matthew recently wrote a post called History of the Web. I read it. I found it fascinating, especially since I don't work with front-end much. I do more back-end work, and so I thought this was very educative. It was a very great overview of all the different tooling and things that have evolved in the web, and it's been a lot. So we talk about a ton of different things. Some of them include HTML, DOMs, Document Object Models, PHP, JavaScript, Web 2.0, CSS, ECMAScripts, cross-browser bugs and different implementations of JavaScript, the evolutions of the browsers themselves, the downfall of Internet Explorer, jQuery, REST, RESTful apps, TypeScript, and the future of front-end. So there's a lot of content. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on whatever app you're listening to it on so that you know when a new episode comes out. Also, you can follow my Twitter at Alexis Input to see any updates about the episodes. You can also support me in Anchor, and I would really appreciate that as well. Uh, yeah, so I think that's all. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. The performance will be getting shortly. Please silence your cell phones while we get you ready for Alexa's input. And now enjoy the show. Welcome back to Alexa's input. This is going to be the 14th episode. I actually can't believe I've made it this far, but we're here. Today I have with me Matthew, not Matt, Gersman. Matthew, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so my name is Matthew. I am a staff engineer at BlueCore with Alexa. Um, I've been in the industry about eight years now. I've been writing code my whole life. I spent the last four years before this at Dropbox doing tons of friendly things and speaking at conferences. And uh, recently I wrote a History of the Web article and Alexa liked it. So she said, hey, will you come on my podcast? And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, and here we are. <laughs> 
That's true. And it was great. So can you tell me more about how you got into front end? I'm always interested to know and how people got into a certain area that they work in. Yeah. So it's funny. So first of all, I've been building websites since I was a little kid. So like, um, there's kind of like two times I got into front end, right? There's like the, like, there's all the HTML sites I built on what was called Angel Fire in the 90s or late 90s when I was like eight or nine years old. And uh, then there's much, much later when I was like already graduated from school. I was working in the industry. I was mostly doing backend work at that point. And I uh, was put on a front end project and I worked with uh, these two really great developers. Their names are Harry and Jeremy. And they kind of taught me front end in the first place. And uh, I, I really liked it. And on top of that, at the time, companies were having a lot of trouble hiring front-end people. So I was like, hey, I'm going to convince all these people I'm an expert at this. And I wasn't, but they thought I was. <laughs> and that got me in the door at Dropbox. And then I, I kind of just like, it kept going from there. And I kept getting more and more into front-end. I love that. I think it is amazing how a great mentor can shape your career sometimes in the best way. So maybe we can start with what is front-end? Like when you say front-end, what do you mean? Yeah, so when I describe front-end development, I usually describe it as code that runs in a browser. So we are working on, you know, these, these applications that run like in, in literally your browser, so Chrome, Safari, et cetera. And it is like this interactive thing that you use. So, um, you know, Google is a web application, like Reddit is a web application, the New York Times is a web application. And pretty much like the entire, everything from sending down the JavaScript, HTML and CSS to actually running it and rendering the page, all of that kind of fits into this like bigger scope of front end. That's a good explanation. So I guess now that we know what front end is, maybe we can dive into a little bit about the article. Um, of course, I'll link it in the bio, but uh, I thought it was a really great summary of front end. I definitely learned a lot from it. So maybe we can start with the basics. Yeah. So um, I uh, it was fun. I kind of wrote this article because um, my, uh, my my boss, our CTO, said to me, "Hey, can you give me a primer on like what like like." what are all the different parts of the web? Why we need so many tools, all these different things. And I was like, okay, you know what? I'm actually gonna do that. But like to really explain why we need these tools, we gotta go back to the beginning and we gotta talk about HTML, JavaScript and CSS, which are like the kind of three languages we work with. HTML is the markup language that like says like how the page is laid out. JavaScript, you know, does interactivity, although it does a whole lot more these days and CSS does styling. Uh, although the three of them have become very conflated with each other, depending on what tools you're using. So uh, HTML first, the 1.0 was released in 1993. Uh, the first JavaScript was 95 and CSS was 96. And the web's kind of been moving forward from there. Uh, we we saw the DOM introduce the DOM the document object model. I always want to call it like the object model for some reason. Uh, it, that came out in 1998, uh, and uh, from there, just like a whole bunch more things happened, and that that led to modern web development. But we'll we'll get there in a moment. It's funny because I hear that uh, there's a joke or something made about JavaScript. I don't know if it's really true, but the book to learn JavaScript is much smaller than the book to learn the exceptions to the language. So, uh, the, yeah, so the, the story behind this is there's uh, a book, I want to say it was called like Essential JavaScript or the JavaScript Reference Manual. It's by O'Reilly, who like kind of published all the big books. Uh, and then there's a second book uh, by this guy, I, I believe his name is Douglas Crockford. I, 
hope that's his name. <laughs> it's like embarrassing to forget his name. He's so he's so semi he's so famous in this world. Uh, but he wrote this book called JavaScript: The Good Parts, and that book really was like the JavaScript manual for so many years. And the reason for this is JavaScript has been built in this like very hodgepodge way. Like lots of different features have been added to the language over thirty some odd years now. I guess it's twenty six years now, uh, and uh, we always maintain backwards support. So JavaScript has things like GoTo's built in, which you didn't know about. And it's got like line labels and um, a lot of like really gnarly things that we have mostly just like blocked via linters or won't work in a modern like JavaScript preprocessor, uh, but will still work in a lot of browsers because we don't deprecate support for anything in the web ever, um, at least not built into the browser. There, there are lots of exceptions for things that were plugins. So HTML came first, right? Yes, HTML was first released in 93. And like, like, if you remember, like the web was considered documents at the time. Like most pages were like fairly statically rendered. Uh, you probably built them using like Microsoft front page or later Dreamweaver. Um, and you would just ship down HTML. And that was about it. Like JavaScript was used for like, oh, like I want to like handle this form validation or like I want to pop up an alert when they do something wrong. But it, it did very, very little in the beginning. So HTML was like really what we did. And as we started to have some more like, like dynamic pages, so PHP, which um, was originally um, like the, it was like the pre-hypertext, it was the hypertext preprocessor. Uh, and then it, like it later became a backronym and it was a whole thing. But PHP and CGI applications were some of the first ways of shipping dynamic HTML down where it would be different based on the server, uh, server-side rendered HTML. And this is separate from a totally different thing called dynamic HTML that I didn't actually cover in the article because uh, it kind of was just like a path we took that fell off. But dynamic HTML was one of the like early competitors to JavaScript in the sense of interactive web. So you can go Google all about that. I had a book on it at one point, which I've long since lost. <laughs> Amazing. So am I right or wrong in saying that HTML gave you pages and then JavaScript, did it give you abil the ability to have things like blogs and conversations on websites and maybe even cross-link websites or could you can also cross-link with html right when we say interactivity yes. what did javascript give you that html didn't it's kind of interesting because i'm like trying to remember exactly what early javascript gave us which is very mm -hmm. different from what modern javascript gives us like like these days like websites are entirely built in javascript like you write your entire application in javascript and there is a runtime that turns it into html and puts it in the dom so like these days we use javascript for absolutely everything in the early days i i want to say it was a lot of like like we said before form validation or like you know um ajax was a pretty big, uh, uh, people have described it as a watershed moment. So Ajax stood for asynchronous JavaScript and XML. Although later we started sending down JSON over Ajax, which then conflicted with the acronym, but we kept the name. And it was a way to send data asynchronously from a page that was already loaded to and from the server. And we did that in JavaScript. So uh, you saw a lot of early applications like Dig or Nebo or Gmail. Uh, all these applications allowed you to do something on the page and have it hit a server. And then the page would show you new data uh, based on something you did. And that was all done in this JavaScript world. But um, this was still during kind of the phase before we were rendering our entire applications in JavaScript. We were largely sending things down server-side rendered using some type of server language, and then JavaScript was like bolted on to make the page interactive. 
Okay. Yeah. And I guess when I think about blogs, I'm thinking about people commenting, like pushing buttons, entering information that was really started to be a thing with JavaScript is what you're saying. Yeah. That really led yeah. to what we called web 2.0, where it was content that was user driven as opposed to content that was driven by whoever owned the website. Okay. And so does CSS make it just prettier? That's, is that, that's my conception of CSS. Is that wrong? Yeah, CSS is like, well, so like it's it's like fundamental, it's also a layout tool. So it's like fundamentally like just like laying out all the furniture in the room also. So like um, one of the ways I've heard it described is like, you know, like with HTML, you're like putting the furniture in, like in the room and then CSS is declaring where it all goes um, <laughs> uh, is a way of doing it. I don't know exactly what JavaScript is in this story. I guess it's just like the trampoline in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> I um, <laughs> um, where I don't know your speakers or something for playing music, but it's um, yeah. So CSS like does everything from like colors and fonts to laying things out in grids. Um, you can do all sorts of stuff with CSS. People have built chat apps in CSS, which is actually pretty cool. They did some like really hacky things where uh, the way this worked was uh, you would have like an image as a background of something. Uh, and it would load a different URL based on like what had been typed into a field. And as a result, it would hit a server. Uh, there are these really cool applications <laughs> that have built entirely in HTML and CSS um, that are interactive and they just take take advantage of like some of the like more quirky or advanced, depending on what you want to call them features. I love that. So can you explain the DOM to me? You mentioned it before. Yeah. So um, the, the, the DOM, the document object model, uh, is a way of, so HTML is this markup language and it comes down as like, it's very similar to what we call XML, uh, where it's just like all these like brackets and like things open and close and put them inside of each other. Um, the DOM takes HTML and basically says, okay, let's store this as a tree in the document and all these nodes can have different attributes. So now all these like different like tags that we were putting on the HTML tags, like, um, you know, like color or, or just like some piece of data uh, or an alt tag, all those things are stored in these nodes on the DOM. And then uh, we can take advantage of the DOM by using functions like get element by ID or get elements by class name, et cetera. And we give those functions, you know, a selector, which points to something in the DOM. And then the, the browser walks up and down the tree and finds the thing you're looking for. And then you can mutate that node and actually change things on the page. Um, so for a very long time, what we were doing is we would send down the HTML and then your JavaScript would go find the node you needed. Uh, and then you would make actual changes like to that node in, in real time. Uh, and you would just say, okay, like, like this is the new HTML that is going there. Um, I, I wrote, uh, you know, earlier in my career, I wrote a bunch of applications that did things like that. Um, so it would like, like, like set up like a listener um, and, and that's, that's, this would also all be in the DOM, like the way events are handled, they go like up and down the tree. So you would set up a listener on a particular node. And then when uh, a certain event got happen, happened, like a button was clicked, uh, it would trigger uh, a DOM mutation uh, in the sense that JavaScript would run and, and say like, hey, let's change this node on the page. Okay, interesting. So it sounds like a, a way of ordering and then controlling the way that the data or the state of the data, right? Is that a right way to describe um, it? I, I think if we're going for like like a computer science definition, it is the in-memory like representation of the page um, that that you can query on and do stuff on. Um, I think that's like the probably the best way to describe it. It's like the data structure uh, we picked to, to, to manage web pages. Nice. So this gave you more control over how 
the page was set up. Is that right? It was, so what's interesting is it was really just a standardization of things that were already happening. So lots of different browsers had their own implementations of HTML and how they were rendered. Uh, they had different functions for handling these things. And the DOM was one of these like kind of first attempts at, okay, let's standardize how browsers work. Let's like, you know, make websites cross compatible um, because the, the only way we can make these like sufficiently advanced websites like we have today was to start standardizing how things worked across browsers. Okay, that makes perfect sense to me. So how did this aid in the, in the advancement of websites and web applications? Yeah, so um, it's kind of interesting, right? Because like, so the DOM technically came out in 1998, but everything takes a while to kick in. So I, I would say that like this next wave of applications, the web 2.0 ones that we've talked about are really when like, like we started to see like the benefits of all this. So, uh, you know, like MySpace was a really popular early web 2.0 site where like that had lots of interactivity and like users could inject HTML and do all sorts of cool things in there. Um, I did know, that Gmail. when I was young, when I was like yeah. 13, I was doing that. <laughs> MySpace was when I was 13. So I don't, <laughs> maybe you were late. <laughs> I probably was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, or maybe I was 12. I don't, whatever, you know. Matter. Um, yeah, like Gmail was another big early application. Like those were like some of like the first web pages that were like truly interactive and very different from say, like even Amazon, which like was, which was another, you know, early site as well as one of the first websites on the internet uh, where like, you know, you would add things to a cart and continue, but it was all pretty much handled server side with cookies. It was very, there was very little bit on the front end. Yeah, so tell me a bit about this part where you're talking about these ECMA scripts. What are those? Yeah, so um, ECMA script, is the actual standard that JavaScript is built on. So uh, it's ECMA stands for the European Computing Manufacturers Association, but that, that's long since passed. It's kind of like all these things picked up an acronym at the very beginning, and then they grew so far past the acronym it no longer counts. Um, it's like AOL no longer stands for America Online, not that anyone goes on AOL anymore. But so ECMAScript, uh, ECMA, the organization, has a committee, which is called Technical Committee 39, or TC39. And TC39 is filled with uh, people, basically, from big companies that can afford to pay the membership dues. It's like 80 to like 150 grand a year, depending on how big you are. I want to say that's how much it costs. And uh, those companies are then allowed to send representatives who vote on the spec for JavaScript. So, for example, uh, like employees at Google or PayPal uh, or a whole bunch of other places will get to, um, like they will, those companies will send representatives that will have a say in the future of JavaScript. Um, the way it actually works though, uh, is it's all open source. It's done through GitHub. So anyone, anyone could submit a proposal for a change to the language. It goes through multiple phases, uh, it, stages they call them, stage zero through four. And uh, stages zero, one, and two, zero and one are like, hey, I have an idea. Two is like, hey, somebody has actually bothered to implement this idea. Three is like, okay, this is like actually standard and we're ready. And four is like, okay, this is in several browsers and you can just trust that this is available in almost any evergreen JavaScript engine. So. Um, the committee is the one who ushers the, these proposals along. Every committee needs, I, I forget if they call them advocates or 
um, they, they have like an appointed person for every proposal. Uh, you need to find someone who is is formally part of the of TC39, uh, and you become part of TC39 by working for a company that is paying membership dues, uh, and uh, and the company decides that you're the person they're going to send, or you're one of the three people they're going to send. It's kind of that's how it works. Um, I'm not sure how many votes each company gets or how they handle that. I had no idea that that was how it happened. That is insane to me. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah. So who's actually implementing the code though? They're voting on it, but who are the people actually writing it? You said it's open source, right? So it's an open source spec and it is the definition of JavaScript. So I once saw a panel- I see. So I once saw, yeah. So I once saw a panel of TC39 members and one of them described it as, as it's just another implementation of the spec. Like the spec itself is an implementation of the language, uh, which I thought was a really interesting way of looking at it. But uh, the people who are implementing it are the people working on Google Chrome and uh, uh, V8. V8 is the JavaScript engine in Chrome. Uh, it's also used for Node. Uh, so the people working on V8, uh, which is used in several browsers, uh, I want to say Safari uses WebKit. Uh, there was a different one for Edge, although that's since died. Um, and uh, yeah, so to answer your original question, uh, the people working on the browsers and Node.js are the people implementing the the language itself, and that's why there's a spec because they all have to they all have to provide the same interface, and it has to work roughly the same way. Um, and that's why we deal with these weird cross-browser bugs. Um, although some of the tools on top of it, which we haven't gotten to yet, are the things that take care of that. I did wonder why there are some cross-browser bugs. Uh, that totally makes sense to me. So you're saying that everyone has their own implementation of, of this JavaScript, um, ECMAScript, right? So yeah, what so other implications does that mean that besides the bugs, or is it really that is the implementations that not all browsers work the same? Well, there's also like competing priorities, which is almost yeah. political. Um, you know, may, maybe not in the sense of like, you know, like politics, politics, but like, for example, Apple will push for changes in the browser that are privacy focused, whereas, you know, companies that rely on ads will push for changes in the browser that will make it easier to track users. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's like very different priorities based on the different members of, um, of the committee, which is really fascinating. As far as bugs are concerned, uh, a lot of it's just because like, you know, like, like you had, you have two developers doing the same project in a silo uh, and bugs come up out of that. So that's, that's part of it. Um, like, you know, like, like the language, the implementation of JavaScript, um, like you can implement JavaScript in Rust and in C++. So you could do both of those things. Uh, and then like, like there's, it'll, it'll run the language separately. Um, I, I think Mozilla's is written in Rust. I could be wrong now. Yeah. So I think that leads pretty nicely into uh, talking about browser history. So what what type of browsers evolved in the beginning and, and how did they evolve, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, so uh, there were a lot of early browsers um, that were like text-based. Uh, one of the ones I remember the most is called Lynx. Um, I remember it because I, I worked for the guy who made it. Um, he, he ended up uh, being one of the people who went on to Netscape. Uh, so Netscape was a, another early popular browser uh, and so was Internet Explorer. Those were kind of the two big ones in the early days. There were some others, but the, they really won most of the market share. Uh, at a period of time, Internet Explorer had like 80% of the market share for browser usage. It was very, very high. Um, and then over time, uh, people started to ship new browsers. So Netscape eventually kind of died and then was reborn as the Mozilla Foundation, which shipped Firefox. And Firefox was like this first real competitor to Internet Explorer. And it was really the first thing that like started to bring down its market share. And then 
Apple shipped Safari not long after that, I believe. Um, so originally you were running Internet Explorer on a Mac as well. Um, the last version of IE to run on a Mac, I want to say is five. Um, so you would run Safari uh, on a Mac and then um, shortly after that, Google shipped Chrome, uh, which it's kind of hilarious because like I remember Google Chrome being a huge deal when it came out. Like people were speculating, will Google create a browser? And now it sounds like the most obvious thing on the planet that Google has a browser. But there was a period of time where not only did not only did they not have one, but we were wondering if they were going to do it at all or if it made sense for them to do it at all. And then of course they eventually did and shipped Chrome. Uh, and now that is by far the most popular browser on the web. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of the time, uh, like you have this new class of bugs where something only works in Chrome. Um, and that's also why Microsoft decided to ditch their JavaScript engine and move on to V8 and move on to Chromium, which is the open source kind of underlying um, application for Chrome. Um, so the modern Microsoft Edge is built on the same kind of tooling. Uh, it's, it's built on a lot of the same code as Google Chrome. So what happened to Internet Explorer? I mean, I remember Internet Explorer being a pain, but I also remember it being, you know, like you said, one of the only things. What, ha like, what has been the downfall of these browsers that were once popular? Yeah, so the thing about IE was IE had a lot of like, uh, IE had the problem that, you know, some people run into, Chrome, run into with Chrome today where, uh, there was a lot of custom stuff that only worked in IE or like things that worked a certain way in IE and worked different everywhere else. But IE was the main browser. So everyone implemented their stuff to work properly in IE. Um, in the early 2000s, there was a test called the ACID test, uh, which is, is still available on the web. And like, it's like, it's like, like version three or four or something now. Um, but um, what it did was it tested all the features of the browser and uh, people wanted to start building these more advanced applications uh, and uh, the just the, they, those weren't implemented in earlier versions of IE. So um, the, the other thing to remember is like IE 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 were all like fairly different beasts. IE 6 was the real one, like the last version of IE that was like truly popular and had like massive, massive adoption. Whereas IE 7 was like, as it was already falling off. Um, so IE also had this, I want to say it was a plugin architecture called ActiveX, and that allowed you to build these other applications inside of IE, but they only worked in IE, so it had to be on a PC. Um, and, you know, as Macs became more popular, as more browsers started shipping, uh, and then when the iPhone shipped, uh, and, you know, the, the default browser for a lot of people became Safari, and then later Android and Chrome, um, it was just like, okay, we're, we're not built, like, we're no longer in an IE-only world. It's just like, um, I, I don't think that there was one, actually, that's not true. Um, there is a great story about how IE died. Um, so, I love that. <laughs> um, there's an article about this one. IE was already, like, very unpopular at this point. So, what I was going to, what I was going to say before is that there was an extended period of time where, um, IE was just falling in popularity and people weren't really using it anymore and all that. But what happened was at YouTube, after it was acquired by Google, they, the, the team at YouTube were fed up with IE and they wanted to encourage people to use other browsers. So without anyone's approval, they shipped a pop-up, uh, like a little like, like modal on the page that said, hey, we're gonna stop supporting IE soon. Please upgrade to one of these other browsers. And as a result of this team shipping this thing without permission, every other team at Google followed suit as precedent. And all of a sudden, all of these pages on Google were saying, oh, we're no longer gonna support IE. 
And uh, as a result of that, lots of people got to stop supporting IE6. Uh, and then, you know, much, much later, um, like then they could stop supporting other versions of IE6. So this was specifically IE6 we're talking about. Um, it feels like really sabotage. Just- <laughs> yeah so like the other thing though is like it was sufficiently outdated it was long since considered a security flaw and it was just like engineers were just really fed up with it it's like it's just like building mm-hmm. software for older hardware or like um you know um and a lot of the problem was that enterprise organizations wouldn't upgrade um so for example as of like three years ago Ch- chase bank was still using like windows vista or windows 7 on all their computers because it had the right version of ie that worked with their with their applications which is absurd <laughs> um oh so uh, um so like people like no longer supporting IE allowed the web to move forward and this team just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Um, There were a lot of other really interesting things that happened with that. So for example, one of the issues was the order the browsers were presented in. Um, So like it listed these browsers and had Google Chrome been listed first, that could have been a major legal problem for Google. But what the team did that was really smart was they randomized it, but they saved it per user. So it was random, but it was different for every user, but consistent for the user. Um, So uh, anyway, I I think that's how it works at least. Anyway, they they just, you know, said like Safari, Chrome, whatever, Opera, uh, and they just like tried to convince users to download any browser that wasn't IE6. I just remember it being very, very slow. I think my mom yeah. still has it. And it, I'm just like, oh, every time I open it, I'm like, please, God. Unless, no. unless she's running Windows mm-hmm. XP, I don't think she's using IE6. She might be using IE10. <laughs> I just mean Internet Explorer in general. Ever since, like, a, a few, ever, I don't know, for a long time, <laughs> my memory of it is just being very slow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, it's just like an outdated piece of tech, and it just it can't keep up. It's, it's just not designed for the modern world. Yeah. So how did that, how do all these browsers being created, how does that relate to the web 2.0? Yeah, um, so they're, they're kind of separate things actually. Um, but the big thing is that, so we, we started seeing a lot of different browsers and web pages were also getting sufficiently more complex. And that's when jQuery started to become really popular. So jQuery, when it first came out, it was absolutely brilliant people love to complain about jquery in 2021 and there's a lot to say about what like why it doesn't hold up today but what jquery initially did was they provided a standard interface for making changes on a page across browsers and they just took care of all the underlying browser quirks it was called the facade pattern and a lot of applications were written like in jQuery, which was basically its own language, but like built on top of JavaScript. Uh, and it allowed you to ship code that would just work on any of these browsers, including IE, including Firefox or Chrome or whatever. And uh, um, that was it. So jQuery over time, um, the browser started standardizing and actually you know, getting it together and coming up with the same APIs and doing things very consistently. Uh, and that's why it really fell out of popularity is we just don't need it anymore. Um, so it's it's not that jQuery was ever really bad. It just ascended into the browser. It became a first class feature. Um, and then the trade off of jQuery is you're shipping down a bundle of JavaScript that blocks the page before it loads. So you have to ship down all the JavaScript to get the page to load in these like modern applications where the page is rendered in JavaScript. And uh, if you're waiting on jQuery, that's frustrating for people. Um, also, jQuery isn't really compatible um, in a architectural sense with modern like React applications, which we'll get to. Um, 
And uh, as a result of that, it, it, it's kind of a popular source of bugs, um, mostly just because the, the, the patterns that you write in jQuery are very different from the patterns that you would write in React or Angular or Vue these days. Um, so as a result, like when people have jQuery in the applications, it's like always old code and it's always frustrating to deal with and like just people want to get rid of it. <laughs> so are you saying that React is a replacement for jQuery or it's something else in the, the layers of the front you know what? I think my hottest take is going to be React as the new jQuery, which would certainly <laughs> ruffle some feathers, but like really we're there. <laughs> um, React, so kind of talk about React. So the, the problem people had with jQuery um, or specifically just like imperative development um, was that it was very prone to bugs. And we have to talk about declarative versus imperative code here. So um, what happens is, uh, imperative code is saying, you know, like, like when X happens, do Y, and if Z, do A, and like if B, do C, etc. And it like keeps going on, and you have all these branches, um, and you know, like you like like very much lay out, like, okay, what code do we like? What do we execute under different circumstances? With declarative code, it's almost like writing configuration. It's very much saying, okay, this is what I want the state of the world to be based on like what this like based on like what variables are coming in. So you just like. Um, React gave this like promise that UI is a function of state, and uh, if uh, if you update your state machine, then the UI will just re-render and the DOM will update. So uh, the kind of like so, um, those are like the the basic things, which is like this declarative versus imperative code. Um, but the the big thing that happened was. Um, lots of applications were having trouble keeping their state in sync because say you would click a button and that would mark a message as read. And there were like five different places that there could be like a message notification that you need to close. Well, in an imperative application, you need to manually like say, okay, like, is it like, okay, the user has clicked on the message and now it's been read and like we, we can mark this in all these different places. With, um, with the flux pattern that was popularized by React, the front end would issue an action to this kind of like state object, which would say, okay, hey, I read the message. The state object would update, and then the entire application would re-render. But the thing that made that, the thing that made that really novel at the time was renders were expensive when you were ma manually mutating the DOM. So what we used to do is we used to grab a DOM node and say, this is the new HTML in that DOM node. And the browser would like deal with converting the HTML to markup and like actual like uh, like a tree structure and render it on the page. What React did was they said, okay, we're going to introduce the virtual DOM, which had a representation of the same DOM that the browser is using in JavaScript memory land. And that was much, much faster than touching the regular DOM. So they would diff, uh, what they would do is they would render the entire page uh, and then they would do a diff of the two trees and then provide the minimal set of updates on the page. But the user didn't need to know about that. All the developer needed to know was, hey, I'm running React. I have told React, this is what my page looks like based on this state. And React took care of all of that under the hood. Um, so React is also very much dealing with a lot of the cross-browser inconsistencies that we see today. Most of that's just built into the, into the library or really it's a framework now. And it takes care of, um, uh, it takes care of a lot of those problems. Everything from like, like dealing with the mutations of the DOM to the weird inconsistencies between browsers. Okay, so basically jQuery and React are just different ways of dealing with the differences and mutating the pages. Is that right? Um, 
Finally, kind of, yeah. People don't like to compare them because, like, it's like the new thing and the old thing, but really they're just, like, evolutions of the same part of the web. It's like, this is the runtime that we have decided is the best runtime to ship down today. It makes developing applications easier, and we're going to go ahead and use it. And right now, React is the current state of the art. Uh, at, at one point, jQuery was the state of the art, and at some point, React will no longer be the state of the art. So... With this, we're talking about state, which reminds me of being restful. How does being restful tie into this model or what we're doing here, or does it at all? Well, the more you sleep, the better you are at writing code. <laughs> uh, I like anywhere. that. <laughs> um, um, so rest, um, rest is a uh, popular, uh, it's funny, I recently had a, a debate with someone, is rest a pattern or a spec? And I actually was wrong. It is not a spec, it is a pattern. Um, so rest is, uh, um, stands for like represent, representational something, state transfer. I, I, I don't know, we can Google it later. <laughs> um, so rest is really just like very much following uh, HTTP spec where we have gets and posts, but also deletes and puts which are all different ways of issuing an HTTP request and do specific things to a route. So uh, get is retrieving data, post is creating data, put is updating data, and delete is deleting data. And then what we would do is we would like very like, we would explicitly structure our URLs in such a way, um, by the way, for years I called them URLs, <laughs> and everyone thought I was nuts, and eventually I started calling them URLs, but I still like URL. Um, I like URL, so, especially because of the Dixie Chick song, URL's gotta die, so. Yeah, let's bring when it the, back. So anyway, the URLs. URLs. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, um, URL. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, so anyway, you would have like a very specific URL structure. <laughs> I'm going to laugh every time I say that. A very specific URL structure that would say like, okay, like this is this model that exists in this thing. And it would really closely map to your backend database. And you would issue, uh, create, you know, creates, deletes, updates, et cetera, on, on those things. Um, so that's what REST was. Um, and for a long time, the uh, REST was really, really popular. Um, it very nicely matched the popular pattern model view controller, which worked really well on the back end. Um, so, you know, we had Zend in PHP, we had Django in Python, we had Rails in Ruby, all these were MVC frameworks. Um, there are many, many more. And for a while we were doing that in the browser. So between jQuery and React, uh, we were using Backbone and Angular 1. Those followed this MVC, MVC pattern, the model view controller pattern. Uh, and they very much like, they assumed that you were operating on the rest pattern and that you were doing everything properly to the point that like it would issue a delete http request which like very few people use in production applications these days but it for a long time it was very popular so do you think it's bad to not be restful because i've heard comments like that's not very restful as if it were a bad thing um it's really just about picking a pattern for your application and sticking with it like so the other thing is like, there's nothing wrong with having a URL or an URL called like delete, like delete objects, right? Like, like you could just have that, like that could be the endpoint you hit, you issue any kind of request and it just works. And honestly, like they're, they're slightly easier to debug and like easier to, to work with because you can just like type them into your browser or just issue a curl. I mean, you can do a lot of things with, this with but by the way, I don't know how people pronounce C-U-R-L. <laughs> that curl? one I've always called curl. Yeah, C-U-R-L yeah. makes sense now. You're right, <laughs> but, I'm behind you. 
I, I guess. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, any, anyway, um, both are fine. Really, it's just a matter of whether or not you're consistent in your applications. Um, but the other thing that became popular over the years was GraphQL, which basically has a single endpoint, and you just issue a GET over HTTP. And uh, you are now like following a totally different spec that is entirely done in um, kind of like, like the body of the request as opposed to using the headers and all that. The body of a GET request? I guess it's not the body of a GET request. I guess they do use posts. Um, I'm just well, you can have a body in a GET request apparently, but people get real, you know, people have a lot of opinions about it. Well, so like, so like, you can manually type anything you want into a curl and it will work. But the thing is, is most servers will reject that. So if you're running like kind of, you know, like a standard server-side framework and you put uh, a body inside of a get or a delete, the server will just ignore it and pretend it's not there uh, and it won't work. So um, like it's it's not just the opinions, it's also like, you know, browsers will go out of their way to prevent you from doing that <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, so um, uh, yeah, so, but anyway, uh, GraphQL is, uh, this this newer way of handling APIs where we treat the API like a graph and we specify, okay, these are the exact fields we want down and we use it. Um, it's very, very popular at Facebook. Uh, they they, they kind of uh, they, they pioneered it. Um, and a lot of people are very interested in it. Um, I, I've, I find, so a lot of the tooling around GraphQL is really cool and it is a great spec for a lot of applications. But if your data isn't stored in a graph, I don't really get why you would use it. In fact, I'm pretty sure if your data isn't stored in a graph, like it, it doesn't make sense to use it. Um, so I always find that interesting with, you know, just kind of like the like, ooh, shiny uh, nature of it. People love shiny things. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, okay, so if we go back for a second to where you're saying you're, we're almost there on your, on your blog where you're talking about okay so in 2015 now we have we're at this point we have this whole stack um can you talk a little bit about like where we are at this point and then what starts to happen next yeah so um so kind of taking a few steps back we kind of jumped to react and graphql and went all over the place um so kind of there was jquery world and then there was backbone and angular and can you explain what backbone and angular are i actually don't know they are front-end frameworks that were popular for a while. They had their own runtime. You ship them down to the page, uh, and they were very much the same thing as React is today. Um, it's just oh, okay. like another. It's just another runtime with a bunch of patterns you follow that make it easier to build applications and give you structure. Like that's what they were. Um, okay. Backbone was Backbone was an open source project entirely. I mean, both were open source, but Angular was pioneered by Google, uh, whereas Backbone was was pioneered um, by mostly an individual. Um, I forget his name. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so there were there were those things. Um, uh, what what Alexa's referencing when I start talking about like. Um, kind of like the, the early 2010s, is we started introducing a lot of build tooling into the web. So before you would ship down all your JavaScript files individually, you would um, literally just like, like server-side render your HTML, decide what script files need to be pulled down and like put them in. And you would have, you know, sometimes hundreds of HTTP requests grabbing different files that you need. And this became, this did not scale, um, especially with HTTP 1. So a round trip request to a server in HTTP 1 was very expensive. And as a result of this, if you have a round trip for every JavaScript file you need to serve, and also they're blocking on each other and like you're waiting for all of them to come down, your page is gonna take forever to load. So what we started doing was we started concatenating the files. 
we would just like put all the like we would just say okay like we now have these 50 files they're now one file um and we're going to send it all down at once uh and then we would minify it so that we would remove all the white space and it would automatically rename the variables to be something shorter uh, and that would reduce the bytes sent over the wire um, so we needed tools to do this, uh, and two of the early popular ones were Grunt and Gulp. Um, they were both considered what we call task Those runners. Those are funny names. <laughs> yeah, they are funny names, and, and they've got great logos. Grunt has this great pig, and Gulp is like a, like a slurpee. <laughs> um, um, uh, it was funny too. Grunt was like, like, oh, we're like that was like really into configuration, and Gulp was really into code over configuration. And that was a whole argument for a long time, and, and no one cares. <laughs> we, we love a good tech argument. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, um, we we started introducing a build step. That was really the the big thing here. And as a result of introducing a build step, we could also tweak the language itself. So in 2009, CoffeeScript was released, and it was almost a brand new language that compiled down to JavaScript. Um, it took a lot of cues from Python. It was white space based. And it added a lot of features to JavaScript that we now take for granted. So uh, it added arrow functions, it added promises, um, it added modern string interpolation. It added optional chaining. Lots and lots of things that, like you know, we uh, we we now have built into the browser and we take for granted. So CoffeeScript was this dialect of JavaScript that people wrote for a few years. Um, but the real problem with CoffeeScript was it just wasn't close enough to JavaScript, and it could never become the real language. So for a very long time, um, we we lived in this world where we ran ES5, ECMAScript five. Um, it, ES6 wasn't uh, introduced for, for, for many, many years. <laughs> for a long time, we ran ES5, which is kind of like this version of JavaScript that works in most sufficiently old browsers. In fact, most modern web applications compile down to that version of JavaScript today. And then in 2014, uh, a team introduced this new project called 6 to 5, uh, which later became Babel. And that compiled ES6, the new version of ECMAScript, down to ES5. And that allowed us to change the actual JavaScript language and start iterating on it in the browser without dropping support for older browsers. So uh, similar to CoffeeScript, we were, we were compiling the language to JavaScript. But now we were compiling new JavaScript to old JavaScript as opposed to CoffeeScript to old JavaScript. And once ES6 shipped, the, the TC39 TC was just like, okay, we are never shipping this big of a release again. And uh, they moved on to these iterative yearly releases. So, so ES6 later became ES2015, uh, and then we have ES2016, 17, et cetera. And I couldn't even tell you what's in each version. It's really just like, okay, what did we get done this year? Like, that's really just it. It's like, what got through this, like, this year, which is now a sprint, <laughs> um, uh, and got shipped <laughs> in this version. Um, her lies are composed of sprints. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, we, we started writing newer JavaScript, compiling it down to older JavaScript, and now we can make all these cool changes. And that wouldn't have been possible without a build step. Um, and that was kind of this big introduction. So um, uh, one of the things I've had in the article is kind of in 2015, you know, you're probably writing an ES6 or CoffeeScript. Um, you're compiling it down to ES5. You're still using jQuery. Like it's definitely in your application somewhere, even if it's not your, your, your tool of choice. You're probably using Backbone or Angular in addition to it. In fact, Backbone required it, jQuery. Uh, at this point, you're using Grunt and Gulp to compile your stuff. Um, serving has gotten faster, but we're still doing DOM mutations by hand, uh, which are very slow and are error prone. Uh, and 
Uh, people were, were styling using less and sass, which were two languages that compiled down to CSS. Uh, and you also compiled that with Gulp or Grunt. Um, today, you compile them with Webpack. So this is kind of like what the stack looked like in 2015. And it really isn't that different from today in the sense that just like, like there are a lot of tools and, and, and they only kept growing from there. Yeah, speaking of that it kept growing, as we mentioned, or as you mentioned, React, but there's also, uh, I've seen a lot about TypeScript. So what is TypeScript? Yeah, so uh, I adore TypeScript. So <laughs> TypeScript is uh, another dialect of JavaScript, but it looks very, very similar to JavaScript with the exception that it has type implementations. So they added kind of this meta language on top of JavaScript that allows you to type JavaScript, as in provide types to variables and functions and all sorts of other things. And the TypeScript compiler does what's called type checking, where it makes sure that all the types line up and your application compiles, so to speak, uh, and then it converts it to regular JavaScript. The cool thing about TypeScript that makes it very different from CoffeeScript is when you compile TypeScript down to modern JavaScript, it looks almost identical to the original TypeScript code. Like it's just removed a bunch of things as opposed to really changed syntax. And that's that's kind of the, the core thing. And one of the reasons I think it, it survived and did so well. For a while, there was a competitor to TypeScript called Flow, which was just a different language. It did the exact same thing. TypeScript is pioneered by Microsoft or backed by Microsoft. Flow was backed by Facebook. And really it was just like, okay, the web consolidated around TypeScript. It was, it was just a better language and eventually flow was effectively deprecated. I don't know if they formally deprecated it yet, um, but it's it's very much fallen off. Um, so TypeScript allows us to uh, really start enforcing constraints in our applications. And it also makes it so much easier to refactor things because in an old world, you know, you might change a function signature and you have to go find all the places that function is called and make sure you don't break anything. With TypeScript, you change the function signature and the compiler tells you everything you broke, <laughs> which is particularly nice. Um, so TypeScript has been this big thing that has really uh, allowed us to build these just like much more stable applications. They're much more resilient. Um, I, uh, I recently described TypeScript as calcium for your code base uh, in the sense that it just makes the bones stronger. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like <laughs> that's the, the highlight of what it is. So really this made it a lot easier for developers to build more reliable applications. Yeah, it, it just really unlocks a lot of things. So like, for example, dependency upgrades become easier. So like, if you want to go from React 16 to React 17, it's like, well, the React 17 types will tell you all the, all the breaking changes that you have in your application. And if you fix it at the compiler level, chances are your app is just going to work. Like, you, you know, you might have the, like a, a runtime bug here or there, but for the most part, things just work. Um, it also allows you to enforce constraints. So you can have different modules between teams. One team could be working on you know function like function foo another team could be working on function bar and if they've properly laid out the types for those two functions if they change something the other team will just like automatically know based on the fact that the types are now broken um, so it really helps you enforce these contracts across your code base um, it also works like you know vertically in the application so um, a lot of the time server side we will 
have our APIs and we'll, you know, like use protobufs over gRPC to like deal with our backend services. And that's strongly typed. And, you know, hopefully we're running Go or like or the latest or like Python 3. I think Python 3 has types. And uh, like everything's typed there. And then uh, kind of at the HTTP layer, we'll then use OpenAPI or something similar. OpenAPI was originally called Swagger, which was a much better name. <laughs> and Yeah, I call um, it Swagger Specs. I like that. I, yeah, I liked it too. Um, and what you can do is you can um, you can enforce these types between the front and the back end. So now there is a standard language open API for enforcing that the back end is sending the right thing and that the front end and tells the front end what it should expect to receive. And now you can start like really expecting, okay, like this like object is going to contain these keys and these things are going to be there. Or it'll tell you if they may or may not be there. It'll force you to handle cases where like, hey, this, this key is optional. You need to handle the case where the key is not present. Um, so it, it kind of takes care of all of that. So um, yeah, it's been this, it, it's really improved productivity. Um, I, the way I, what, what I tell people who are new to TypeScript is I'm just like, it's going to get in your way for the first six months and then you're not going to be able to live without it is, is pretty much how I feel about TypeScript. <laughs> that sounds like a, a great tool to, to have then. Um, so now you're at this point, you've mentioned a lot of different tooling and a lot of different changes that need to happen in the last, like less than 20 years, even if you're keeping up. So we're at a startup and my experience is that we get a lot of technical debt quickly, even at our startup, like we're on App Engine Standard and we have Python 2.7 and we're upgrading it. But this seems almost like a different level of tech debt that you have. You seem like you constantly have to be keeping up. So what is the tech debt like in a standard front end stack? Yeah, so uh, I've started describing the web as a, collective mountain of technical debt because so first of all we're dealing with all the weird nuances of the browser all the weird nuances of html css and javascript and not just like the differences across browsers i mean like the weird features in javascript that still exist today we're we're dealing with all these things and then we're we keep shifting tools because the state of the art just keeps improving um, and one of my theories on this is, first of all, front end is a relatively young field. So if you look at, you know, like server side development, or you look at like, you know, specific applications, like mobile development, for example, like basically started in 2007. Like it's, it's one of the few fields younger than front end development. Um, front end development, like, you know, maybe started in the 90s, if you want to count it back to them. So um, it's still very much maturing and we're still very much solving a lot of problems for the first time, or at least so, like coming up with major breakthroughs. So what will happen is you will move your application from the current state of the art or the old state of the art to the new state of the art, say jQuery to Backbone and then Backbone to React. And all of a sudden you have this application that is now written using three different patterns. And you've got this like sufficiently hairy part of your code base. That's not just old because of bit rot, but it's also following a pattern that your newest engineers have never seen before. Um, and not only that, but maybe some of your code was written in CoffeeScript, or maybe some of your code was written in Flow, and you just like compiled it down to regular JavaScript and just checked it in. Um, and now you've got this code that's been compiled down from the original language it's in, which by the way, you've lost the blame history on now. Um, so like, you can't even go look at the changes over the years. It's a whole thing to go back to that. Um, and, and you're dealing with that. So a lot of it has to do with just the fact that like, we're, we're almost constantly doing a migration. <laughs> um, I, I think TypeScript is probably gonna be like the like, 
the like the the real version of JavaScript. I am not convinced. I I think TypeScript will be around a lot longer than React. Um, to to put it simply. Well, the good thing about that is is that. It's keeping, it's giving us more work to do. So keeping us uh, having a job. And also like, it's pretty exciting to be in a field where new things are coming out all the time, uh, where things are rapidly improving. So those are two good things about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. Although a lot of people like to complain about it. I, I, I enjoy mm -hmm. keeping up with JavaScript and just the general ecosystem. Um, it's been a fun thing to, you know, kind of specialize in. Yeah. So with all these tools that we're using, how has how performance evolved and how, and how does that affect our page loads on a web application? Yeah, so I guess just like, we could just like kind of talk about how an application loads these days. So um, when, you, when you run a, a standard JavaScript application, um, what often happens is uh, your server sends down an index.html file with very little, like very little HTML in it. Uh, there is a single root node for your application to render into. Uh, you ship down React and you ship down the code that runs on React and it all gets rendered in JavaScript in the browser. So it's all done client side now. And that's that's kind of this big change, um, you know, from the historical way. So we have to ship down all the code to run your application and then we do that client side. Um, some of the, the optimizations we can do is we can do server-side rendering. So um, Node.js, which we haven't really covered too much, and I don't really go into much in the article, um, but Node.js allows you to run JavaScript on the server. And that could be really valuable because you could pre-compile your view or pre-render your view and then just send it down as regular HTML. The thing about this though is it comes down as regular HTML and then you have to do what's called hydration where you, you know, like the the JavaScript then gets mounted on top of the existing HTML that it should know how to render, and it's got to be able to like be become interactive and be able to to mutate it. And fortunately, this is just all taken care of under the hood in the framework. Um, so that's very much how kind of that works. Um, web performance is um, kind of always a thing. Um, you know, like we we worry a lot about like how long it takes to send down the bytes over the wire. Like that's that's what a lot of mm -hmm. people focus on. Um, but so for example, I was profiling an application recently and really most of the blockages are in fetching data after the page is already loaded. And a lot of that just has to do with invent, like investing in good loading states. Because um, there's both, you know, actual performance of like how long it takes for the user to be able to do something and then perceived performance, which is like, like how does the user feel about how long it took them to take to do it? Um, and a lot of the time perceived performance is is easier to fix than like actually making the page faster <laughs> is a is a simple way of looking at it okay so what is the future of front end where are you hoping that things go from here so um first of all if my my hot take of the day is that J react is the new jquery my even hotter take is that i think that one day we will look back at React and say there was a best version of React. And in fact, I think it might have already passed. My suspicion is that it's when hooks came out, um, but, but don't quote me on that. Like we'll, we'll, we'll only know with time. But what I really hope we do is we stop shipping down all these runtimes. And frankly, we stop shipping down JavaScript over the wire. So one of the things we haven't really covered yet today is WebAssembly, which is something that Google really tried to push for a long time and never really took off in popularity, largely because it's hard to write. Um, so WebAssembly allows you to write compiled languages in the browser uh, and they will run in the browser. And there's like a whole different set of constraints and a lot of other different problems, um, but it is much, much more performant than having a interpreted language with a runtime running. Now, what I believe is that 
TypeScript plus React. And when I say React, I really mean JSX plus like React APIs is really a great interface for developing the web. And I think the thing that we need to do going forward is figure out how to compile React plus TypeScript into WebAssembly or something equivalent so that we can just start shipping down binaries down to the browser that will run in the browser. And we no longer have to worry about parse time. It'll sufficiently sit, shrink the, like the size of our applications. Um, and I, I think it'll make the web much faster and you know much, um, much less error prone as well. Um, so the, the, the other kind of thing here is like, we, all, we still have all this cruft on JavaScript, right? We have like the go-tos and we have like all the weird ways exceptions are handled and the different JavaScript engines are doing all these performance hacks under the hood to make that stuff work better. Um, but like we're, we, we're still not able to take advantage of type data, for example, like um, so TypeScript has provided this rich typing layer, but the browser has no idea about that and it can't use that to enforce anything. Um, so I really think this next phase is like the thing that's gonna have to take down the, the thing that will eventually take down React will not have a runtime. It will be something that is purely compiled, and I hope it is compiled into some form of bytecode as opposed to just more JavaScript. Because I think as long as we're serving raw JavaScript to the web, like that's going to hold us back in the long term. I, I really believe that's the bottleneck. That's not to say JavaScript is a bad language. Like we can still write in JavaScript. We just should compile it down to something more performant. And we should get rid of the parts of the language we don't need anymore on these on these more modern applications. So uh, I would love to see someone invest in that. I haven't yet. Um, the, um, the the two projects I find most interesting are Dino and Svelte. So Dino is a new version of, or uh, it's it, it's not right to call it a new version of Node. It is a alternative to Node that runs TypeScript nearly natively. So I believe it still compiles it to JavaScript and runs it, um, but it starts taking advantage of some of the type data. Uh, it also changes the way modules are handled, which we didn't get to cover today. Um, and it does a bunch of different things. So it's a new server-side implementation of JavaScript. Uh, and a lot of it's written in Rust. And my hope is that Dino will eventually allow us to run JavaScript as like a true binary on the server, um, even if we can't run it that way in the client yet. The other thing I find really interesting is Svelte. So Svelte is another uh, kind of library framework, whatever you want to call it, uh, for writing JavaScript applications. But the, the really cool thing about it is it has no runtime. So when you write Svelte code, there is a Svelte compiler. And again, it does compile down to JavaScript, but that JavaScript, there's no additional runtime that needs to be shipped. So you're just shipping down your application. You're not shipping down a separate you know, library with it or dealing with that. Um, so I find both those projects really interesting. And I think those are really kind of like poking at the future of the web. Um, but really it's gonna, it's gonna come down to investments. And uh, you know, Google or Microsoft pretty much are gonna have to decide that, that like this is worth it. Um, and I don't know what set of circumstances would cause that. Um, but I, I think that like, if we want the web to be really, really great, we're going to have to find a way to ship down like, you know, byte code as opposed to, as opposed to like actual source code. <laughs> nice. So that's what I'm hoping for. I'm also hoping um, that, you know, we'll be able to enforce types in the browser. Um, and, and, you know, we, we might eventually get threading in the browser. Um, and then, you know, things will really kind of keep going from there. Sounds exciting. Yeah, I uh, still need to refine this argument, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, thank you for joining me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, Alexa. This was a lot of fun.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something. Uh, I know I definitely did. And I'm excited for the next episode where I talk with Henry Wolf about front end, being a manager, and creating your own brand in tech. So I'm looking forward to the episode. I think uh, we had a great conversation as well. And make sure that you subscribe so that you know when a new episode's coming out. Follow me on Twitter at Alexis Input. And if you can, please support me on Anchor. Thank you again. I'll see you next time.